thank you to our worship team for leading us in such beautiful hymns. As I said, uh, first service is an added benefit to the set list that they created. Um, when, when I'm asked to play the piano for We Have This Hope right before the sermon, I'm uh, too preoccupied with the stress of trying to get that baseline right, and we have this hope that I, I don't have time to stress out about the sermon, so it's a, kind of an added benefit to, uh, to me there. But, oh my goodness, what a beautiful song, and what a beautiful hope we have. We're going to uh, begin with a word of prayer in just a moment. Let's do just that. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, you are incredibly gracious to us. and We are eternally grateful. And Father, as we seek to be moved and inspired by your word this morning, I ask that you just come be amongst us and guide us. Father, we all acknowledge, myself included, that uh, you did not say that a pastor or a teacher would guide your people into all truth, but your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. May we, each one, be drawn ever closer to the truth, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, church family, we've been on an interesting uh, kind of progression of thought recently in uh, our sermons. I don't know how many of you have, have caught it, but it's been fun to kind of observe um, from the, I should say, from the, the behind the scenesness of it. Um, we had a couple of, of teachings leading up to our communion service, really focusing in on the, the meaning of the symbolism of the bread and the cup and of the, the foot washing service. Um, and then we celebrated communion together and really lived in that, that moment of, if we're looking in the terms of the Passion Week of Jesus' life, um, that Thursday night moment in the upper room celebrating Passover, which became the Lord's Supper. And then uh, the, uh, the next week, Pastor Rodney took us through to, in that Passion Week flow, to Friday. And the, the trial and um, the, the execution of Jesus, his death on the cross and his atoning death and everything that that means to us as believers in him. We dwelt on that for a week. And the next week, we really kind of leaned into um, the fact that on, on the Sabbath, just as he had done millennia before, Jesus rested in what he had accomplished, in the satisfaction of a job well done. And then at the morning of the third day, how he rose victorious. His tomb is empty, and we talked about what the, the resurrection means for us as followers of Jesus. And last week, we really kind of we hit a, a, a high note that we'd been building towards by celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Easter weekend, and we had a, a wonderful time of song and worship and of um, just dwelling on even what 
baptism means for us as believers. It's not just a symbol, it's an, an active participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. And when we rise from the waters of baptism, we rise to newness of life in Him, a new creation in Christ. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. We're con- going to continue that flow a little bit today in a historical narrative to the early church. We're going to uh, spend a chunk of time in the book of Acts today at a specific incident, but to uh, kind of set up where we're going, we need to take a little bit of a history lesson back. So just journey with me a little bit. If you remember uh, all the way back to the book of Genesis when God calls Abraham, one of the conversations they have, God alerts Abraham to the fact that his family, his ancestors, that God is going to bring out through him They're going to spend a large chunk of time in, uh, let's say, uh, an extended and not great, I won't even say the word vacation, in bondage in Egypt. They're not on a a pleasure trip. This This is a forced stay of labor in Egypt for 400 years. And, uh, We see that play out as Joseph um, rescues his family, and yet they end up in Egypt, and there's a new pharaoh who doesn't remember the things that Joseph did for the Egyptian people and subjects the Israelites to slavery, and generations of that linger. And then there's this guy in the text, his name is Moses, and his, his life circumstances have taken him even outside of Egypt, even though he's an Israelite, and he's tending some, some flocks, some sheep out in the wilderness, miles away from Egypt, and uh, he sees something. He sees something up on a mountain. He sees a bush. It's not just a, 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 a bush. That doesn't jump out to him. What jumps out to him is that it's on fire, right? But even more than being on fire, what's so special about this bush that is on fire? It's not being consumed, right? There's a fire there, but it's not devouring the fuel of the bush. And Moses, I got to think Moses, is kind of, he probably would have been some sort of an engineer today. He needs to understand what is in front of him. He, is, he can't just let a bush be burning, but not really be burning in front of him. He needs to understand how this is working. And so he approaches this bush. i got to figure this out. And wouldn't you know it, this bush begins to talk to Moses. And of course we know it's not the bush, it's the presence of God in the bush is talking to Moses and says, hey, you are in the presence of God. You need to take your shoes off because this is a special place and this is a special moment. And they proceed to have a conversation. God says, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt and I'm sending you to be the messenger of their deliverance. And Moses says, great, I'm on my way. Not really. There's this long conversation recorded in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 where Moses tries every which way possible to get out of it. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't think he's qualified. He's unsure what the people are going to think. And along the way, he asks God a few times for different signs. And God gives him a sign at the bush. A sign specifically. He says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord said, certainly, I will be with you, so don't worry. Moses says, who am I? God says, I'll be with you. (laughs) doesn't matter who you are, Moses. I will be with you. Uh, and, And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. 
which I got to say is kind of an odd sign. Like, here's the proof that I'm sending you, is that after you go and do what I'm telling you to do, you'll come back here. It's kind of odd. But catch in, the, in this moment, there's something that uh, we really aren't going to grasp unless we look at the Hebrew here. This, the, the, the type of bush that this is, there's a specific name used for it. It's called a seneh bush. And it's the only time in all of Hebrew literature that a bush is called a seneh bush. The interesting thing about it is that when the Israelites indeed come out of their bondage and slavery, Moses leads them back to the Sinai mountain where that bush is at. And indeed fulfilling what God has promised that they will come back to this very same place, to this very same mountain where he had this conversation with Moses at the burning bush. They're at the mountain, but now God shows up a little differently than just a small bush on fire. Matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 19, it's recorded this way. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Burning bush looks very subtle in comparison to this moment. The entire mountaintop appears to be on fire. The smoke is ascending. God's voice seems like thunder, as you would imagine, but still an intense moment, right? God's presence as a fire. Well, the story continues to progress, and God tells Moses, let the people make me a dwelling place that I might live with them. And he goes out to lay out the specifications for something that will be referred to as a sanctuary, as a tabernacle, or even as the tent of meeting. A tent among people living in tents in the wilderness. And at the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, it describes what happens at the dedication of this tent when it is completed. Verse 34 says this, that the cloud that God's presence, the pillar of cloud, covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until it was taken up. They followed the cloud the presence of God wherever it went. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And as you remember, what was the cloud like at night? It was a fire. There was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Well, time continues to pass. And it's kind of first David's idea, but it's his son Solomon that gets to build a physical temple for God. And that's a story in and of itself, whether God is super jazzed about that decision or not, but he decides to honor it. And when they dedicate the temple, there's something interesting recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 7. When Solomon had finished praying his prayer of dedication at the temple, fire came down from heaven 
and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. feels very familiar, right? The author is intentionally using the same language as the tabernacle. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Again, the presence of God showing up in magnificent fire. Well, time passes. The people of Israel fall into apostasy. They leave God. The, the kingdom splits into two Ten tribes going north, calling themselves Israel, and Judah and Benjamin kind of become this nation of Judah in the south. And it's kind of a mixed bag, their history, but nothing really good happens up in the north. And finally, they reject God to the point where he says, okay, I'm going to step back and leave you alone because this is what you want. And the Assyrians come and attack the kingdom of Israel, largely wiping it out, dispersing people across the world. A little bit later, the kingdom of Babylon comes and does the same to Judah and takes a number of the people into exile, into captivity in Babylon. And at the end of that time in Babylon, there's some who return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and they rebuild the temple as part of this process, but it's just not the same. Solomon's temple was a truly magnificent, and as a matter of fact, if it stood today, we might consider it to be the most magnificent structure this earth has ever seen, but it was destroyed during the Babylonian siege. And they rebuild the temple, but it's just not the same. It's just not quite as grand. And yet, the prophets speak of it, that the grandeur of this temple will be greater than the first. You remember that? What are they referring to? Well, God's presence was not going to show up in that temple like a fire. God's presence showed up in that temple in flesh and blood in Jesus of Nazareth. And there's many instances recorded of his interaction with the temple there. But we're following through the story as Jesus has, has been murdered and yet he has risen from the grave, conquering death and sin. And now we're going to pick it up after his resurrection, where Jesus spends about 40 days with his disciples, with his followers. And he's speaking to them about the things of the kingdom of God. As intensive classes go, that had to have been an amazing crash course on kingdom culture, right? That would have been absolutely wonderful. And Jesus gave them instructions. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father has promised, which you heard of from me. And Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So clear instructions. Go to Jerusalem. Wait for what I've promised you. So sure enough, 
10 days later, the day of Pentecost has come. Pentecost was a, one of the, the Jewish pilgrimage feasts. People from all over the world were invited and encouraged to come to Jerusalem, much like uh, Sukkoth, which is the feast of, of booths or tabernacles, and uh, also Passover. Those were the, the three pilgrimage feasts where you would go back to Jerusalem. And at Pentecost, there's people from all over the world in Jerusalem. The Jesus followers, they're up in this upper room of a house. They're gathered together. And we're going to pick up the story of the incident there. Feel free, if you have your Bibles with me, to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Or you can follow along on the screen as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 begins like this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or in other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The incident. If you Track with me for a moment. This is absolutely incredible. Sometimes there's things that are stated in Scripture, and maybe it's because we're familiar with them, but sometimes we kind of gloss over the drama of the moment. But just embrace it with me for a moment. There's a prayer meeting going on in the upper room of a house. There's the bustle of the street going on outside, but suddenly there's an incredible sound. I have to imagine it's like a tornado. If any of you have ever heard the sound of a tornado, just an amazingly powerful sound. But it's not sweeping through the entire city. This is a laser-guided wind that is entering a single room of a single house and enveloping that space. Whatever window is open, doors are blown open, this wind rushes in, and a magnificent fire enters the room as well. And if that wouldn't disturb your prayer meeting enough... This fire begins to break off individual flames and rests on the top of everyone's head in the room. That would be one to write home about. Wow. And there's something not just amazing visually that's happening here. There's a deep symbolism that is taking place for the church. The Holy Spirit is intentionally using the same visual of God's presence as the Holy Spirit comes to the church. The Holy Spirit is saying, there is a new temple. There is a new temple. And it's each one of the Jesus followers. The old temple is still standing in the background of the scene, but God has made it known to his people there is a new temple in town. And it is them. They are the temple of God. No longer are they to consider the temple in Jerusalem to be the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit now dwells in the hearts of the followers of Jesus. And this beautiful reality has immediate consequences for the church. 
almost immediately from the get-go, the next very next story that we come across in Acts chapter 3, they are thrown into conflict with the old temple. The temple authorities, the priests, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Peter and John are arrested for healing a crippled man outside the temple, and then they're also for claiming that it was in Jesus' name that the man was healed. Later on, as we continue to read in the book of Acts, droves of those who are sick or possessed by demons, both in Jerusalem and all the surrounding regions, they're coming to the church to be healed. This was supposed to be one of the functions of the temple. You went to the temple to ask for healing. You went to the temple to seek blessing, to become clean again. And yet, the church is fast gaining notoriety as the place to meet God. And so the apostles, once again, instigate some jealousy from the temple leaders. They're jailed again. They're beaten. They're threatened and released. The tension between the old and the new temple continues to ferment and build until it finally reaches a breaking point in the narrative. A fiery young preacher in the church named Stephen, he steps on one too many toes, as it were, and he is brought before the Sanhedrin. And what do they accuse him of? Do you remember? The accusation leveled against him is this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Make no mistake, Stephen died for his allegiance to Jesus. But take a moment to realize that one of the principal crimes that he was charged with was speaking against the old temple. The first generation of Jesus' followers understood this very clearly. The new temple and the old temple cannot coexist. Either God lives in the hearts of his children or in a building, not both. And of course, it's clear from Acts that the church acknowledges that the dwelling place of God is in the hearts of the followers of Jesus. So you might be looking back at Acts chapter 2, maybe at verse 46, where it describes this new church movement. And uh, it's, you think, well, it says right here that the church was in the temple day by day, continuing with one mind. And yes, you're right. The church was constantly going to the temple. But, but why? Were they going for the sacrifices? No, of course not. Jesus was the final, ultimate sacrifices. All of the other sacrifices that had taken place in the temple, they were pointing to Jesus. Anything beyond that is irrelevant. Were they going to meet with God? I think no. And here's why. Just journey through, through their story a little bit with me. Two months ago, Jesus died and he came back to life. And in a matter of hours, he met Mary outside of the tomb. He met two other disciples miles away walking down a road. They run back to Jerusalem. And while they're in a closed locked door meeting, Jesus walks through the locked door and encounters with them. He randomly pops up at a fishing trip of theirs. And then during 
uh, as if that wasn't enough with, with Jesus, during this Pentecost, we might even say Pentecostal prayer meeting, uh, as it were, the Holy Spirit enters the room with the sound of a tornado and sits fire on their heads. I think they know that they don't need to go anywhere to meet God. He will come meet you. So why are they going to the temple? It's a very simple, practical reason. Because there are other Jews entering the temple to seek God. And if God has a new method for achieving an old objective... Maybe bring the new method to those seeking the old objective. We'll come back to this idea a little bit later. The church is the new temple. The Apostle Paul references this often in his letters, calling the individuals of the church to consider themselves temples of the Holy Spirit in addition to the collective church body. In a few weeks, we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians and we'll look at one of these, this, these uh, statements in particular. But the Apostle Peter as well, he references this idea in his first letter by calling his fellow Jesus followers a royal priesthood. In fact, this is why most Protestant churches, us included, teach something called the priesthood of all believers. Because you are the temple of God And if you are going to minister to, within, and out of the temple, you need to be a priest. The church is the new temple. And just just to clarify, the church is not a building. That's something that we have done with this word over the course of a couple millennia. Uh, The word church in Greek is just ekklesia, and it simply means assembly. A gathering of people. Jesus co-opted this word to refer to his assembled body of believers. So we might say, to clarify, that followers of Jesus are the temple of God. All right, so there's been a lot there. Let's take a deep breath real quick. We'll look at a couple implications of this temple presence reality. Followers of Jesus, individually and corporately, are the temple of God. Now, the implication of this truth for the church in Acts was that the old temple in Jerusalem was not to be thought of as the temple of God. Okay? It's a building, but now the new temple is the hearts of all believers. So the implication of this truth for us today is not that different. There is no building that should be thought of as the temple of God. Okay? There's no building that should be thought of as the temple of God. And this might seem offensive to our sensibilities a little bit. doesn't make it any less true. Walk with me through this. Like most churches... We collectively here at Beaverton Adventist, we often refer to the room that we are meeting in right now as the sanctuary. Very good. Okay. The word sanctuary, it means sanctified place or space. It means a place set aside for something specific. 
Now, in biblical language, the word sanctuary carries a lot of potential meaning, specifically as well in in theological circles, as we often uh, use the word sanctuary to refer to the Old Testament tent of meeting, the tabernacle. But the question is, is the room we are meeting in now a sanctuary in the same sense as the tent in the wilderness? No. This is a sanctified space, but not in the same manner as the tabernacle in the wilderness, and certainly not for the same function. You see, who sanctified this room? Who set it aside for a specific purpose? We did. The church. The building was not constructed according to plans given by God to a prophet on a mountain, nor did a fiery cloud inhabit the premises, driving everyone else, everyone out because the glory of the Lord had, was present in this place. That's not what sanctified this place. A community of Jesus' followers felt led to erect a structure here and dedicated it to sharing the gospel of Jesus with whomever enters. It is a sanctuary, yes. It is a man-made one. It is a good one. God is happy with it. But it is not a temple. Church family, you are the temple of God. Not this building, not this room. You are. So what are we doing when we come here? Do we enter these walls on Sabbath morning to meet God? Yes, to be sure. But not because he can't be found everywhere else. Church family, how many of you uh, have ever had prayer by yourself? Let's just make it easy, in a, in a car. You're driving down the road, you had prayer. Okay, very good. Um, uh, do you believe God heard your prayer? Yes. Do you believe that, that God was present with you in that moment? Do you believe that God answered your prayer? Yes. We don't have to go anywhere specific to meet with God. God can meet us anywhere, everywhere. So, we come here on Sabbath morning to worship God, yes, to encounter Him, yes, primarily to meet with each other to do that together, to praise God together, to encourage one another, to pray with one another, to learn from each other. In fact, I would say this facility is much like what the old temple was for the early church. This facility is much like what the old temple was for the early church. It's a place where we gather to meet with others seeking Jesus. All right, so it's a lot. There's a good chance that this is maybe a bit of a newer thought for some of us here. It might not feel comfortable, and that's okay. It really is. I want to invite you to not run from the discomfort of these, this, this reality. Ask the Holy Spirit, who lives inside you, to help you grow in your understanding on this. So, how are we to live as temples? Part of it is, again, not thinking of a physical structure as a temple. How are we then to live? 
This must be things that we can do in addition to things that we cannot do, right? All right. Things that we can do. Number one, maintain your health as best as you can. Eat well. Hydrate. Exercise. Rest. I put those four on top because I decided to preach to myself a little bit. Um, last week... <laughs> Last week, I shared a bit of a testimony of a, of a, a crisis that I was going through, uh, that, that I had gone through the week before. And I want to just say I'm very grateful for the loving support that I received from my church family. I think I was not incredibly clear with my words because it, I believe I gave the impression that I was having some sort of a, an emotional existential crisis, um, when in reality, it, it had much more to do with the stomach flu than it did voices in my head. Um, in, in my attempts to be vague, I was a little too vague. I apologize for that. Um, but I'm, I'm, I am tremendously grateful to my church family for, for the, the loving support that I did receive as a result of that. Um, but I just want to say why, why I'm like saying I'm preaching to myself here is that I'm pretty sure that I got some sort of a virus a couple weeks ago. Why, why, like I had such a, a rough moment. But I definitely was, uh, had not taken care of myself to weather that storm well. Um, the, the day that I had, uh, such a, I had a, a rough night, um, that, that day I hadn't gotten enough sleep the night before. I hadn't drinking much water at all. I'd skipped lunch, um, hadn't been exercising, and it was kind of this perfect storm of being at a low point to try and weather that. And I'm, confession is good for the soul. I'm just letting you know that I know from personal experience that it's important to take care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Manage your body well. Life, we live in a sinful world where sometimes random stuff hits you no matter how well you take care of yourself. Just, we have to deal with that. It's part of the reality of life. But man, we can sure help ourselves a little bit along the way by managing our life as best as we can. We can come alongside each other to support each other for that. So eat well, hydrate, exercise, rest, socialize, hang out with people. It's good for you. Also, maybe I need to hear this one a little bit more, retreat. <laughs> maybe spend a little bit of time on your own too in some introspection, reflection, and prayer. And I would be remiss if I did not mention this one as well because this is what Paul specifically teaches the church on this issue. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So pursue sexual purity. It's probably a, a, another time, another place to, to spend more on this topic. But Paul is very clear that nothing can corrupt the temple of Holy Spirit like sexual impurity. If you don't eat well, if you don't hydrate, there's problems with that but not the same. So pursue that. Pursue purity in your sexual life. Maintain, here, here we go, here's another one. Uh, so in addition to maintaining your health as an individual, what can we do? Maintain the health of the church. Meet regularly. Come together often. Fellowship intentionally. I, I am guilty of this as well. There's a lot of people to greet and... and, and uh, and say hello to on a Sabbath morning at church, but and cer certainly you cannot have an in-depth conversation with everyone you meet, but make it a point when you can 
to move beyond happy Sabbath, how was your weekend, get to how are you really doing? Tell me more about what life has really been going like for you. Let me pray for you about this. Hang out outside of these walls. It's a good thing to do. Socialize with one another other than the Sabbath morning worship service. Follow Jesus together in whatever ways you can. Pursue him with the community around you. Hold each other accountable. Encourage one another in your pursuit. And again, this is one that Paul really speaks to. Don't tolerate false teachers. It's for the health of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Church family, you have been bought with a price, as Paul says. Jesus died and he rose from the dead and our baptism that we've entered into has laid our old life down. We rise from the waters, a new creation in him, created in, we walk in newness of life. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good things which he has prepared for us to do. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us to share his gospel with the world. And we're not to listen to voices within our community or without that tell us differently. Finally, one more thing you can do to live well as a temple. Ask the Spirit to use you to connect others to God. The ancient understanding of a temple in Judaism and out, a temple was a place where heaven and earth met. So whatever God you were seeking to connect with, whether it be Yahweh or some other pagan deity. The idea of the temple was that this is where heaven and earth met. You could approach God here. And God has intentionally, Jesus has intentionally used that same imagery to communicate to us that we are his temple. In other words, Jesus has chosen, he's seen fit to make heaven and earth meet in each one of us individually and corporately. Whether we feel like it was a good call on his part or not, Jesus called us to share his gospel to the world. So ask the Spirit to use you well to connect others to God. Brothers and sisters, if you have invited Jesus into your life, if you have entered the waters of baptism, laying down your old life, rising a new creation in Christ, this is not simply theory. This is your reality. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to conclude our service a little differently. We are going to conclude with prayer, but our prayer is going to be a song. Um, I want to invite you to sing it together with me. We're going to sing it a, a few times so you let the lyric of this song just inspire you, bless you, make it your prayer as we sing together. At the end, um, yeah, after the song, it'll be dismissed. Brother David Sturgis will, will play us a wonderful postlude. Be blessed by that. But thank you for worshiping with us today. Let's, let's make this our, our closing prayer together. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, 
pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary, Lord, for you, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. I'll be a living sanctuary, Lord, for you. Sing it together one more time, just our voices. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. 